Traders extract value from the exchange of goods, money, or commodities. The idea is you buy low and sell high, which means you have an idea of something that's going to be valued or in need ahead of time when others don't, or you have the means to procure a commodity in a way where others don't. For instance, spice traders had the ships, crews, and networks to buy spice in bulk from nations that were producing it and bringing it, and then they would bring it to countries that weren't, like, say, Great Britain, for instance, where people would pay a premium. The amount of money that they could make from those end customers was enough to pay for the ships, the crew, and extract a profit from moving that spice. They were assuming a lot of risk. The spice could get moldy. There could already be an excess when they arrived. Another trader could have brought in a shipment just before them. There could be an extra problem with the ship. The list went on and on. But a successful trader, over time, was able to extract profit more often then they had some sort of accident or disaster or unforeseen circumstance that would cause the exchange to be at a loss. When I started learning the principles of trading stocks, I realized that most everyone in life is a trader, even though many don't realize it. People are exchanging their time for something that they believe is worth it. That time translates to money, crafts, experiences. People put in the time to get an education in a certain subject in hopes that at the end of that exchange, they get a paid position doing a job dealing with that subject. As humans, we know we need to have fun, and many people decide to exchange the security of a certain level of savings that they have to spend it on experiential events, you know, going out to the bars and clubs. Some people are good traders and manage to continue to save and build security while also spending enough time going out, having a good time and letting loose that they remain happy people. Others blow all their money on short-term fun, and then they regret it when down the line they're ready to settle down and not have to work as hard, or they find that they're not able to party the same way that they once were and need other outlets that now they can't afford. Some people trade what they believe to be a commitment to their job for spending time with their family, and others turn down lots of activities outside of the home to spend most of their free time with their families. Generally speaking, the person who chooses to spend all their time at work is making that trade because they think that the things that they'll be able to provide due to what they believe is a trade for increased income will benefit their family, will provide them security down the road, will give them the best education or all of the advantages that they need in an everly, increasingly competitive world. 
the other side of that, the person trades that excess money for the concept that being there as a parent and that experiential time during their children's growth will trump any amount of money or any thing that they could be given. Our primitive mind loves dealing with wrong and right, but wrong and right is often so subjective, especially since something that appears to be the right idea in the moment down the road in retrospect was obviously a wrong turn. When we look at things as exchanges, as trades, we can start to understand probability and we can accept the concept that there's no one decision that we'll make in life that will be our last. And that there's an economy of mental energy and decision-making where you have to be willing to do your best, make a decision, and then move on to the next. As a trader, you're going to have thousands of trades in life and you're going to pick bad stocks. You're going to have terrible days. You're going to be in the red. In order to make it as a trader, you have to be willing to learn how to trade in a way that you never blow your account completely. And then with that assurance, you have to recover from red days in a way that you know that the green days are ahead of you. I wish I'd understood that metaphor so that I could have applied it to my own life before I got into stocks. But I'm not alone. So few of us realize the exchanges we're making in our day-to-day life and if they could see a top-down view of the grand scope of what they were doing, they'd choose to trade their time much differently. I choose to spend a lot of my time listening to podcasts. That trade is that I, I think, as far as the media out there available to me, that often it will be most entertaining to me during times when I'm trying to be entertained. And I've, I've learned that for me, one of the best ways that I can absorb information is auditory. So when I'm choosing to learn things, whether it's like a, a lecture or an audio book, which is basically a podcast, because really when I say podcast, I'm just talking about any long form audio. I do that because I know I have a chance of retaining a significant amount of that information more than if I was just reading the book. I'm also someone who has a lot they want to do in life and I have a lot of interests and I find it hard to justify just sitting in front of a book, not doing anything else as far as how I'm willing to trade my time. I personally feel like it's a much better trade for me to, for example, go for a run while listening to something that I want to entertain me because that I'm actually taking care of my health while smiling or laughing or, or wasting time. I can clean the house. I can do busy work. I can do accounting, et cetera, et cetera. And you can't do that just reading a book. After getting my bachelor's degree in Virginia, I moved to Florida for chiropractic college. It was going to be another four years, give or take, where about three of that 
was spent essentially getting a medical school book education and then a very brief clinical period which is where it really diverged from the much longer in-depth and more rigorous residency that a medical doctor would get. During most of that time, my days were dedicated to learning that chiropractic material for school, studying. On the weekends for a few years, I worked, but I still had plenty of time during the week to focus on just that. I needed to because I was a slow book learner and I had to study a lot. It took a lot of repetition. Once I graduated and I opened my own practice, I no longer truly had time dedicated to just one thing. There was always something for me to be doing and I could never get everything done in each day. Even when I was just dedicating myself to being with a patient because of a bunch of circumstances I found myself in, when I first started practicing, I'd need to listen for the phone, come to the door if another patient walked in, and just be ready for a whole bunch of stuff that prevented me from just focusing. That was a bad trade, a bad exchange of my time, and one of the first things that I did was hired help when I could so that I could just be one-on-one -on -one and completely focused on that patient. But with hiring help, that meant that I had to make more money and therefore I had to become more efficient and I had to see more patients, which meant more marketing. More marketing, more patients meant more different types of cases, more potential for not knowing how to help someone and not knowing how to help someone meant less business. And I also had two dogs. Those dogs didn't ask to be there Neither dog had been one that I had sought out. Both dogs had been dropped off to me at different places while I was practicing chiropractic. One when I was a student because people heard that I was really good with dogs. Turns out accepting responsibility for others' challenges is a common theme in my life. And I'm fortunate for having the dogs to teach me to be okay with that. But these were not little, low-maintenance dogs. They were both high-energy, bully breeds. And they needed exercise. For them to behave and not tear up my house, they needed at least an hour and a half of exercise every day. Ideally more. So that was a non-negotiable trade that I had to make. I had to trade at least an hour and a half every day to exercise in my dogs. Because I needed my house to eventually be in one piece. I couldn't afford buying new furniture constantly. I'd been walking dogs since I was about 11 years old, by myself. From that age on, I'd used monotonous tasks like my dog walks or cutting the grass for my summer jobs in elementary school or washing dishes in middle school to listen to music. It became something I embraced because I had no choice but to just really dive deep into whatever album I was listening to, and that became very pleasurable for me. But as a young chiropractor, struggling to pay one employee and keep a roof over my head at home and my office, 
I really didn't have time for things that were pleasurable. It was sink or swim. And that time, if it could be used for something else, needed to be. In fact, I started getting frustrated at the fact I had to walk my dogs. It was right around when I was reaching my capacity for frustration at walking my dogs that I discovered podcasts. And luckily, those podcasts were in the form of lectures and neurology information, which meant that I could study what I needed to for my patients and for my practice and my career while I was walking. At a certain point, I started breaking even, and I allowed myself to be cut a little bit of slack and to do some things that I found pleasurable so that I could maintain and not completely lose my mind working 60 and 70 hours a week. That's when I began letting myself listen to some of the podcasts that I had heard, comedians I was a big fan of, recorded regularly. From there, I discovered Bill Burr's podcast, and that eventually led me to Joe Rogan. I loved stand-up comedy, and that's why I had initially started listening to Bill Burr's podcast. I had been a fan of him as a comedian before learning that he had this weekly monologue that he did. The reason I love comedy is because I absolutely hated most of my life, especially my childhood. It was terrible. And growing up, I could either look at my life seriously and feel extremely depressed about the nightmare it was, or I could just make jokes about it. And that felt a lot better. And as I got through each fucked up situation, I could either let thinking about how much the world seemed against me and how evil people around me were and how much bad luck I had had and be tormented by that. Or I could just, again, look at it cynically and make fun of it. And I'd learned to pattern that through comedians. Being able to laugh at myself and seeing the humor in terrible situations was the only thing that really made me feel okay about my life, really, for the first 20 years. Maybe more. And so it was a bit of a transformative experience as I listened to Joe Rogan's podcasts through the course of the first year. And I didn't initially like Joe Rogan because I didn't like listening to him. But as I got to know the cast of characters that were his friends, who I found much more funny, ironically, but that he would have on as regular guests on his podcast, I started realizing that there were other people out there just like me that had the same thought processes, that had the same varied interests, that had the same urges due to trauma. And even though I couldn't speak, I started feeling very at home in those conversations. I wasn't the only one either. You know, obviously, Joe Rogan's amassed quite an audience. But people listened to him for different reasons. I certainly listened to him for the information and the interesting eclectic guests that are experts in their fields. A lot of people skip over the comedy episodes, but those are my favorite because... Those are the people that I have felt like 
resonated with me and have found a way to truly be themselves and get paid for it. They're like success stories in my world of bad luck and fractured families and getting the shit end of the stick. Hearing in depth how these different comedians had branched out and diversified what they did. You know, some were musicians, some had TV shows, some did stand-up comedy, some were just podcasters, some had found obscure side gigs. But I, whatever it was, I always really enjoyed hearing how they made it work. I could also hear sometimes when a guest was on and it was clear that they weren't making it work. Sometimes I could hear these people being very troubled and the in-depth discussions they'd have with Joe Rogan would help me catch red flags in my own life. It was the success blueprints, though, that inspired me to say that I hate what I'm doing to myself for the first time. And it wasn't until I admitted that that I started actually admitting some of the realities of my life, how I'd gotten to where I was, and what was really driving me. I was making all sorts of trades in life that I didn't really want what I was exchanging my time for. When I started to break it down, I didn't even think a lot of these trades were good trades in the first place. I was just doing them because somebody else had told me to make that trade. And as I really thought about that person as a trader, it didn't seem to me that they had much reason to know what they were talking about in that advice, in that exchange, in that trade, in that use of my time. <laughs> well, that might have worked for them, and they might have felt justified in saying that. I was finally hearing a lot of people who had lives similar to mine talk about how that didn't really fly for them and they couldn't become successful until they started operating under their own advice. Cultivating their own instincts. During the pandemic, a lot of people woke up and it's been really interesting to watch. People have had a, epiphanies about their lives and about their trajectories. And it's like a renaissance or a, a new wave of sorts of people realizing that. I realized it a few years ago, way ahead of this curve. But, you know, as far as my own life, my own trajectory, I was kind of late to the game. The signs had been there for a long time. Not everybody is completely changing their life around and not everybody needs to. But that doesn't mean that we can't get some knowledge from the principles that show up when it comes to economizing time and becoming a good trader for yourself. That theme that I come back to is the one of misdirection, of thinking that you're making a trade for one thing and down the road you realize it was for another. You thought you were attracting positivity or what you really wanted or happiness or peace and really you were just causing yourself extra turmoil. When I moved to Chicago almost a decade ago, I knew I wanted to take a crack at stand-up comedy. 
I had dropped in on an open mic during a visit after calculating going on an open mic for a couple of years living in a small beach town that there was never going to have any comedy in it. Thinking that if one day I found myself in a big city with the right people, I'd seek out an open mic and I'd go see what it felt like to make people laugh, if of course I could say something funny. There's a lot of mystique to it. And I had ended up dropping in on an open mic during my first visit to Chicago and I'd killed. And that had wet my appetite and I knew I wanted to give it a shot. I wanted to stick with it. I wanted to stand up there until I bombed and then I wanted to come back and I wanted to figure out how to come back from bombing and I wanted to figure out how to consistently make people laugh and I wanted to figure out if... I could cultivate any talent or if I was just cultivating some skills that weren't really exceptional and weren't really ever going to make it to the next level. And I did stand-up comedy for a while. And in comparing myself to other comedians, I, I felt after about a year that I didn't really have the talent to do it. And so I'd hung it up. I'd stopped making that trade. And then shortly before the pandemic, I decided... I wanted to open that trade up again. I wanted to go get on an open mic. I wanted to try and express myself that way. I had some unfinished business. I had some, I also had some ideas that it might be different this time. That I might have realized some things about myself and what was going on that would allow me to tap in to some potential talent. And then the pandemic happened and I couldn't get on a, couldn't get on a stage. Now a year later, I'm doing what most comedians in 2012, when I started getting deeply into comedy podcasts, are doing now. Podcasting. I want to do something different with my podcast than what everybody else is doing. And I want to do some of what everybody else is doing, because there's nothing wrong with it. But podcasting's in a weird place right now. It's saturated and people dependent on other people's stories are having a really hard time. There's some weirdness with Zoom. And no one's really living right now, so there's no, not a lot of new material being invented. People are kind of clamoring for the same guests. Everybody just gives COVID commentary. Everybody's heard everybody's story. And while some elites still have great material that you don't want to miss each week, a la Tim Dillon. A lot of the shows out there have lost momentum. And it was probably a bubble that needed to be popped anyway. And trying to do something different, I've wanted to do that in appreciation of the great work that's come before me. Just like it's important as an aspiring comedian to study the greats, like Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy, the dude from Thomas the Tank Engine, Richard Jenning, Bowser, Roseanne, and many more who touched on subjects that we think are cutting edge, but they were actually on to before people were ready to, to hear. I want to try to do the same thing with podcasting. So last night I was thinking about the good old days, which are crazy because they were just the other day. But so much has changed. So I 
I remembered a podcast that was Burt Kreischer, Ralphie May, rest in peace, and Joey Diaz. And I searched for it on Apple Podcasts, and sure enough, there it was. I was having a hard time falling asleep, and I figured it would be a good exchange of my time just to, to let this thing play, even though I'd heard it before. And I rarely re-listen to a podcast. Now, Ralphie May's dead. Joey Diaz is all but retired from comedy. He's moved to New Jersey. He doesn't go out much. He does monologues for the most part for his podcast, and he ended an eight-year run of The Church of What's Happening Now, which is probably a top-five all-time comedy podcast in which he almost always had guests, and he had a co-host named Lee who became, over those eight years, um, a big personality in a, in a wonderful way. He was a shy kid, remained a shy kid, low self-esteem, and listeners got to watch him constantly work on his self-esteem, work on his self-belief, and laugh at he and Joey while doing it. And Burt Kreischer, who has somehow gone mainstream, at that time he was really trying to become a big-time comic. He had a lot of shows that he hosted, uh, like obscure shows, like uh, a, a theme park show on the Travel Channel and stuff like that. But what he wanted to be was a stand-up comic. And he was popular, but not next level like he is today. And he was doing everything he possibly could to get there. He wasn't making quite as much money as he was today either. He was living a different lifestyle. So anyway, during this podcast, they were all at Bert's house. And they were telling stories. And it was just the craziest thing to hear because... Well... Ralphie was kind of on the other side of things. He never became a big podcaster. He had had a run of specials in the 2000s that had made him a lot of money. And in his health, he was morbidly obese, and his health was starting to catch up with him. But those other guys were just starting to feel some success. Podcasts were just really catching hold. And they were getting sponsors and they were getting more and more listeners each week. And all of a sudden, they were financially comfortable and they had access to the best comedy clubs in the world. And they had earned spots where they could go on stage consistently any night that they wanted versus people who were trying to make it and had to get on wait lists and wait hours just for the chance of possibly getting on at the very end of the night. Like I said, this was in 2013, and it was crazy because Bert was telling a story about his daughters, and he had gone in his daughter's room and asked her to turn on something on television because he was on it, and he was flabbergasted that his daughter didn't have the television hooked up to cable. And he was like, this is the craziest thing. They just stream YouTube onto their TV. I can't believe it. And they started talking about how streaming might be the future of television. That was just in 2013. At the time, they were focused on still getting TV shows and appealing to major networks. And conventional 
approaches to comedy. And each one of those things has phased out. With the pandemic, you know, comedy got phased out. Little did they know the future would be streaming. In 2020, Burt Kreischer had a trending, I think it was like top three for several weeks, show on Netflix. Anybody that has conventional cable TV these days is wasting money. That doesn't mean that they're, they're dumb or it's a mistake, but there's no actual reason to have conventional cable anymore. And I can't believe that in 2013, most people still had cable. I didn't finish listening to the episode, but at a certain point it became kind of sad because it really was a golden age. And there was so much energy. And I remember listening to those guys talk about their dreams. And I remember being inspired as I was listening to them, walking down the street with my two dogs and starting to orchestrate my way out of Florida and my way out of chiropractic towards something that I actually was excited about doing. It was sad because there's not a lot of excitement in that scene right now. People aren't enjoying podcasts. They now have to do it. For a lot of entertainers, they've been reduced to nothing but podcasts as far as ways to make revenue. Podcasts that plug merch and subsequently hopefully drive people to spend a little extra money on the merch. What spoken word is missing right now is good stories. And I think I have some good stories. And I'm just getting warmed up. So I don't want to try to tell my best stories just yet. But I thought that the story of me listening to comedians in Florida was kind of useful for these times. Things change so fast. And while the news is constantly talking about how the economy is about to pick back up and things are going to be booming, we're all exhausted. Like, great, maybe people will start spending money. But did that money that we were spending pre-pandemic really make us any happier? Or were we just spending it hoping that it was eventually going to make us happy. And did we not realize that a lot of that money we were spending on stuff didn't really make us happy and we had some of the best days that we'd had spending time with the people we cared about the most and doing the simple things? And do we not just wish that we could be free to go anywhere we want and hug anyone we want and do the simple things? And while... Gavin Newsom might decide that we're allowed to go somewhere to spend money again. None of us really know when we're going to be just free to live how we want. There's a lot of messaging that we may never be free again. We might have to prove certain biometric status in order to go where we want to go and do what we want to do. And I'm not saying that's the end or that's evil. I will say it's a trade. And I'm not excited about it. 
But last night when I was listening to that 2013 podcast and listening to their excitement, they brought me back. And in five years and seven years and whatever, things that we view as for sure right now and are committed to, we'll realize weren't what we were trading for, that the trades we were making were actually about something else. And we'll be mystified that we're not dependent on some sort of old technology or some old habit or some old way of doing things that we just had accepted was the standard in 2021. And that's really encouraging. And hopefully between now and then, the people that want to out there will continue to refine their trading. And when they have the opportunity, be ready to make trades for things that they really want. Thank you for listening to the Patrick Ely podcast and be sure to check out the referral links in the show notes. I also have several NFTs available on the OpenSea Marketplace, and you can find those by typing in the Patrick Ely Podcast on OpenSea or using the direct links in the show notes and on my Instagram profile through the link tree.